Hi, this is Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. And you are listening to Lake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. We seem to be missing our intro and outro music today, so we'll see if it shows up by the end of the show. Well, today's topic is medical mistakes. Yes, Sir Bob, medical mistakes. The third leading cause of death. Of course, uh, this begs the question, are they really mistakes? Now, I think that that's a, you know, a reasonable answer, a reasonable question to ask. Are they really mistakes? And so, of course, to take a look at this, we should go take a look at a reliable news source, why the Washington Post. And this has really been making news lately. And so I think that uh, it requires a little closer look. And the uh, Washington Post headline is, Researchers say medical errors are now the third leading cause of death in the United States. And this was published pretty recently, I would say in May sometime. And this is actually a rerun of a story that was published two years ago uh, by Dr. Macaray. And so I say nightmares. So a new study by patient safety researchers, the fact that there's even patient safety researchers is a red flag, shows common medical errors may be the third leading cause of death in the United States after heart disease and cancer. Now I say maybe. I don't know why they say maybe. Maybe it's the second leading cause of death and not the third, but it's certainly the third. So nightmare stories of nurses giving potent drugs meant from one patient to another and surgeons removing the wrong body parts have dominated recent headlines about medical care. Least you assume these cases are the exceptions, a new study by patient safety researchers provides some context. As an analysis was published in the British Medical Journal on Tuesday. So again, it's about a month ago. Shows that medical errors, and they put this in parenthesis, I have to give them credit for that, in hospitals and other healthcare facilities. In other words, they did not count the events that were outside of hospitals and other healthcare facilities. So these events are incredibly common and may now be the third leading cause of death in the United States, claiming, this is their number, 251,000 lives every year, more than respiratory diseases, accidents, stroke, and Alzheimer's. Again, this is, I'm going to tell you, this is, this is the Washington Post, a mainstream journal. I'm sure they get a substantial amount of advertising dollars from the medical industrial complex. And Martin Macquarie, a professor of surgery at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, who led the research, he's been doing this research for a few years now, said in an interview that the category includes everything from, get this, bad doctors to, and you just want to, don't even need to read the rest, but in other words, bad doctors are not the main push behind these deaths. This is 251,000 lives every year. So they don't use the word deaths, they don't use the word killing, they don't use the word felonious assault, 
Notice how this is, this is couched. Third leading cause of death in the United States claiming 250,000 lives every year. Not, the, so the word death is not used in the same, you know, in, in this context. So claiming these lives, no. It's not claiming these lives. It's killing human beings. All right. So now we've got that clarified. We know what we're talking about. So, uh, from bad doctors to more systemic issues. In other words, systemic means just by the nature of how the system is organized, these deaths occur. Just by the nature of how the system is organized, these deaths occur. All right. So, issues such as contamination, I'm sorry, communication, breakdowns, when patients are handed off from one department to another. Now, just... For your information, they've actually found that electronic medical records, because of their low accuracy rate, in other words, they're not nearly as accurate as the handwritten records, um, are actually making this step in the process, patients going from one department to another, even more dangerous, or one hospital to another. So it boils down to people dying from the care they receive rather than the disease for which they are seeking care. This is Dr. Macquarie saying this. And so the issue of patient safety has been a hot topic in recent years, but it wasn't always that way. In 1999, now I practiced medicine from 1990 to 2000, it's a 10 year span there. And patient safety has been a hot topic in recent years. Now, since I went to medical school in 1979 to 83, uh, did various trainings and finally opened my own practice, I can tell you that patient safety has always been a hot topic. In medical school, we medical students were cautioned not to admit patients to the hospital lightly because the probability of dying in the hospital for a healthy person is higher than had they not gone to the hospital. So there's an intrinsic death rate just that just is, happens when someone takes off their street clothes puts on a hospital gown, and lies down in the hospital bed. Just that act alone is deadly. Therefore, we were cautioned in medical school in 1979 not to admit people to the hospital unless the condition for which you were admitting them for was in itself deadly because their chances of dying in the hospital were so high. So uh, this has always been a... Uh, if you want to call it hot topic or a major concern or even a major consideration. And so they're saying it wasn't always that way. It was certainly that way when I went to medical school in 1979. It was certainly that way in the uh, 19, uh, early 1900s when doctors were not washing their hands and people would not go see doctors because if you were a lady and you were going to have a baby, your chances of dying in childbirth were much higher when you went to the hospital. So this has always been a concern. And with the advent of the Flexner Report, this is a report done by a PhD researcher, um, and with the establishment of formal medical schools, a lot has been done to try to convince the public otherwise, to convince the public that hospitals are actually safe. And so what's happening in 1999, I'll tell you what happened, 
the internet started taking place and people were able to get information and the lethality of hospitals was growing so much that the man in the street was noticing and it could no longer be covered up with uh, pseudoscience or the appearance of scientific uh, basis for all the therapies. In other words, even the uneducated man in the street was saying, well, it may be scientific, but it sure is deadly. And so uh, in 1999, the Institute of Medicine report calling preventable medical errors an epidemic shocked the medical establishment and led to significant debate about what could be done. Now, again, preventable medical errors as opposed to the expected consequences of routine medical therapy, those are two different things. And so we can see then that an Institute of Medicine report attributing deaths to preventable, preventable medical errors is in and of itself a public relations maneuver. So even when I was in medical practice in the 1990s, about 1994, it became uh, distressingly obvious to, again, these are lay people, people who don't have uh, PhDs or MD degrees or just regular everyday people walking down the street, that the hospitals are awfully dangerous. It was so bad, this is in Syracuse, New York, that uh, this guy had taken his wife to the hospital and she died. He took it upon himself. He deduced, however, he figured it out that the hospital was responsible for her death. And so, of course, he couldn't get anything out of the hospital. He couldn't get an apology. He couldn't, uh, you know, nothing. And I think they even wanted him to pay the hospital bill. And so he got a pickup truck, put an eight-foot by four-foot sign on each side of the pickup truck, saying that the university hospital in our town, teaching hospital, was murdering people. And he took this pickup truck and drove it around the block in front of the hospital every single day for several years. Uh, so to suggest that this is something that just became uh, a concern or uh, in 1999 is, is simply disingenuous. And again, more propaganda, more mitigating the problem, more suggesting that prior to 1999, uh, it was not a major public concern. Okay, but now there's a debate. So 1999, a debate began. And so that would be more or less 17 years ago. Let's see how this debate turned out. The Institute of Medicine, based on one study, estimated deaths because of medical errors as high as 98,000 a year. 98,000 is what they estimated. This is in 1999. Now, to let you know just how uh, whitewashed this report must have been. I got a medical journal in my office. It was in 1996. Journal in my office, boom, plop on the desk and said 149,000 people every year die from hospital-acquired infections. That one number, just hospital-acquired infections, 149,000 deaths a year. And so somehow, the Institute of Medicine, doing a thorough study in 1999, could only find 98,000 deaths a year due to medical care. Now, just so you know, a hospital-acquired infection, obviously, is something that a person would not have gotten had they not gone to the hospital. And so, obviously, it would be a death caused by medical intervention. 
in other words, being in the hospital or hospitalization. So the Institute of Medicine report, which confessed to 98,000 deaths a year, was, of course, whitewashed. And just by the admissions on the front page of medical journals themselves, the confession was much higher. All right. So Macquarie's research involves a more comprehensive analysis of four large studies, including ones by the Health and Human Services Department Office of the Inspector General and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality that took place between 2000 to 2008. Now, as 2000 to 2008, 2012, by the way, another report came out by the Inspector General on just Medicare alone, and they found 180,000 deaths due to medical intervention. But let's see what this one says. His calculation of 251,000 deaths equates to 700 deaths a day. 700 deaths a day. So in a week, that'll be 49,000, you know, 49, uh, I'm sorry, 4,900 deaths. More deadly than the Twin Towers. So this, this is like a war on the United States public population that is killing more people than died in 9-11. So in 9-11, what did we do in response to 9-11? Create a whole police state, a TSA, more security agencies, um, you know, went to war, a couple of them. And so here we have something that's killing at least as many, in fact, quite a few more people every single week. And what's being done? Well, I don't know. Let's take a look and see. And so they're suggesting this is about 9.5% of all deaths annually every year in the United States. And so Johns Hopkins University researchers estimate that medical error is now the third leading cause of death. Here's ranking by yearly deaths. Okay. And so if we take a look at this uh, ranking, we see that heart disease, 614,000, is higher than cancer at 591,000, which is higher than medical error at 251,000. Now, what is less deadly than seeing your doctor? So these things are less deadly. A respiratory disease, whether that's pneumonia or asthma, is less deadly. Accidents are less deadly. Stroke is less deadly. So fewer people are killed by stroke than are killed by medical intervention. Now, what else? Alzheimer's, diabetes, flu and pneumonia, kidney disease, and suicide. Now, I want to draw your, your attention to this uh, category called accidents. And I want to draw your attention also to the category called suicide. We know that diabetes, people who have diabetes, are much like, more likely to die than other people in the United States. And what do they die of? Not your diabetes. They die of heart disease. They die of cancer. They die of suicide and accidents. And what are all these things? Well, when a diabetic person gives themselves an insulin dose that causes their blood sugar to go so low it kills them, 
those deaths are being classified as heart attacks, accidents, and suicides. So we have here then kind of an insight into how these medical errors are actually counted. If you go to the medical census, the um, list, list of causes of death by rate, and this is uh, you know, provided by the, uh, you know, the CDC and people who keep uh, such statistics, we don't see medical error on the list anywhere. Or just not there. Not at all. And so, because it's not listed on this uh, causes of death, we know that these deaths, 251,000 of them, must be classified or subsumed in these other categories. In other words, a certain percentage of all people who die of cardiovascular disease were really killed by their medical care. This is not surprising since the person who killed the, the patient is also the one that writes down the cause of care, cause of death. And so you're not going to have a case where the doctor writes down the cause of death, I did it, uh, confession here. No, it doesn't happen like that. Infectious and parasitic diseases. Again, these are all uh, different uh, causes of death. And these causes of death are all, uh, you know, again, medical care is not listed in this uh, list of causes of death. So let's just take a look, see what the uh, medical industrial complex or the CDC uh, perceives as a cause of death. So heart disease is one, cancer is number two, Chronic lower respiratory disease is 147,000. And so we're like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Somewhere in there is medical intervention. And so we can say something's an accident, but I'd like to suggest to you that something happens 251,454 times a year that it is not, absolutely not a mistake. At minimum, it's a design problem. In other words, this kill rate is designed into the system. Now, other issue here is all these things are less deadly than medical care. If you have any of these conditions, you should never, ever see a doctor. Why? Because the doctor has a greater chance of killing you than the disease that you have. So medical error, or medical, we'll call it medical intervention, coming in at 251,000, these are their numbers, this is what the system confesses to. Um, what they're saying in then is if you have a respiratory disease of any kind, that would be uh, pneumonia, asthma, flu, you should not under any circumstances consult the medical industrial complex because they will convert your, your 147,101 incidents of death up to 251,454. So it makes no sense to consult the medical industrial complex for any illness other than cancer or heart disease. And it may not make sense to consult the medical industrial complex for those, but at least they have confessed by this listing, by their own confession, 
then it makes no sense to consult the medical industrial complex for any disease other than heart disease and cancer because the medical industrial complex is more lethal than any other disease except those two. So let's see what they say in their own defense. Well, we all know how common it is, he said, and this is a doctor. So CDC should update its vital statistics reporting requirements so that physicians must report whether there was any error that led to a preventable death, Macquarie said. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> so the doctor should report whether there was any mistake? So the doctor should invite a malpractice suit or he should invite having his personal license Suspended. Uh, good luck with that, Dr. Macri. So Kenneth Sands, who directs healthcare quality at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, an affiliate of Harvard Medical School, said that the surprising thing about medical killings, and I'm, put, I'm putting the word in killings, is a limited change that has taken place since the report came out. Only hospital-acquired infections have shown improvement. The overall numbers haven't changed, and that's discouraging and alarming, he says. Now, okay, so I was there. I was in medical practice, and I said back in the mid-90s, when hospital-acquired infections were believed to kill 145,000 Americans or so. Now, when you look at that number, who were these people? Most of them had cancer. And when I went to medical school... 1979 on forward, more recently, it was a political decision was made that if a cancer patient died, the cause of death would be infection. It would not be cancer. Cancer was not to be listed as the cause of death. And so what's happened then is these um, hospital-acquired infection, these hospital-acquired infection deaths are now being listed under cancer because when they felt they had to list these cancer deaths as um, infectious deaths, and of course the infections were acquired in the hospital, um, they felt that it would show that we were winning the war on cancer. And so what happened, though, was this category called hospital-acquired infections got so huge, and that did not play very well. So what happened now is these same deaths are still happening, but they're being classified as cancer deaths. Okay. I'm just telling you what I saw from a uh, you know a bedside view of what was going on. And so uh, back in the 90s, doctors would agonize. Well, should we say it's a cancer death? Well, should we say it's a hospital infection death? And so what they did was they would write down infection as the cause of death instead of cancer because they didn't want the, the family to feel that the cancer therapy was a failure or that the person suffered for nothing. All right, so apparently these doctors, maybe they're, they're younger than I am, maybe they're not 60 years old or 59 years old, maybe they weren't there, you know, practicing medicine in the mid-90s when these decisions were made, they weren't at the bedside, and they weren't, you know, filling out these death certificates, or I should say watching other doctors as they fill out these death certificates. And so this is, uh, this is, very straightforward. Again, if you were physically there, if you were in the field of medicine, if you saw what was going on. And so this doctor says the overall numbers have not changed, which is exactly what I said. 
Overall numbers have not changed. So instead of a hospital infection, they're calling it a cancer death. All right. So Sands, who was not involved in the study, published in the British Medical Journal, formerly, oh, BMJ, formerly known as the British Medical Journal. I knew the numbers because I, um, when I was in practice in the 90s, I always did research in the hospital. I mean, not in the hospital, in the medical school library. And the best articles were always in the British Medical Journal. But now it's called the BMJ. Said so that one of the main barriers is the tremendous diversity and complexity in the way healthcare is delivered. Now, get this the tremendous diversity and complexity in the way healthcare is delivered. And so, what he's suggesting then is we make healthcare less complex and less diverse, which means more uniform. So, you're, you're, you're getting the gist of this, right? So, now we're going to get more standardization, more standard of care. We're not going to allow doctors to withhold drugs that they think are dangerous or deadly. So there has been, there's just been a higher degree of tolerance for variability in practice than you would see in other industries, he explained. When passengers get on a plane, there's a standard way attendants move around, talk to them and prepare them for flight, Sam said. Yet such standardization isn't seen at hospitals. That makes it tricky to figure out where errors are occurring and how to fix them. The government should work with institutions to try to find ways to improve on this situation, he said. Time out. Stop right now. Again, having trained in a hospital and even worked in a hospital for some time, I can tell you. It's the 80-20 rule everywhere. 20% of the doctors are responsible for 80% of the deaths. So if anyone cared to look, these statistics are right there for everyone to see. What's the problem? Problem is the doctors with the high kill rate are also the doctors with the high bill rate. And they are also the doctors who literally support the profitability of the hospital. So, finding out where these deaths are occurring and how is actually pretty trivial. And whoever wants to know has more than enough data to know. And again, myself as a physician in medical practice, even as when I was a resident, you would see these doctors just butchering people, killing people. I was like, oh my God. Isn't somebody going to stop them? Can't somebody else see what's going on here? Of course, the only people who didn't know were the patients. Uh, but the nurses knew who the dangerous doctors were. Uh, it was no secret. Everybody knew. But why wasn't anything done? Because if you shut down the doctors who had the highest complication rate, the hospital would have to close. It would simply have to close. Okay, so they're saying, so, so Macri used an airplane analogy in describing how he thinks hospitals should approach errors, referencing what the Federal Aviation Administration does in its accident investigations. Whoa, <laughs> accident investigation? So they're suggesting that each such death should be investigated? Well, there you go. I mean, that's heresy right there. Now, I'd just like to say, every hospital has an M&M committee. Now, you probably think that's a fancy word for maybe candies. No, M&M stands for morbidity and mortality. Yes, M&M. And this committee meets monthly behind closed doors. And only certain people are even allowed in the room. And so at the M&M meetings, morbidity and mortality, they review the deaths of people who die at the hospital. And... You would think, you would think that after a series of reviews, maybe a pattern would be observed. 
but this is a cool thing about it, is they review these charts, and at the end of the review, a cause of death or a cause of the error, we'll just say the death, has to be assigned. And it's E. E stands for error. So there's EJ. That means the doctor made an error in judgment. So he made a decision that was not correct. That's EJ. There's ED. That means he made an error in diagnosis. So he got the wrong diagnosis. Therefore, as a result of not getting the correct diagnosis, the patient died. Then there's ET. No, that's not the being from the outer space. ET is an error in technique. That means the doctor did, had the right judgment, made the right decision, made the right diagnosis, but his technique was wrong. Maybe he nicked an artery and the person bled to death. Just an example. So an error in technique. And finally, PD. What's PD? Patient disease. So the patient's disease was so far advanced that he died of his disease. Now, there's a problem with this process, right? The third leading cause of death, which is medical therapy, MT, is not listed as a choice for the M&M Committee, Morbidity and Mortality Committee, to consider. So the M&M Committee, Morbidity and Mortality Committee, cannot even consider that the doctor gave the, had the right diagnosis, the right technique, the right therapy, but the patient died because the doctor did everything right. So that is not even an option. It's not even an option. And whenever the M&M committee is considering um, what caused a death, every option they have is preceded by the word error. Only PD, patient disease, is not considered an error. And so this is another bias in the evaluation process. So if every death in the hospital that's not patient disease is considered or classified as an error, then you never get to consider that the standard of care, the standard way of doing things might have been responsible for this death. And so what do they say here? Since Frederick Van Pelt, a doctor who works for the Chiardis Group, a healthcare consultancy, in other words, they make big bucks uh, trying to help the industry figure out how to make more money and avoid liability, said another element of harm is often overlooked is the number of severe patient injuries resulting from medical error. In other words, not everyone is so lucky as to die. A lot of people survive this attempt on their lives. Some estimates will put this number at 40 times the death rate. 40 times the death rate. This is, uh, you know, this, this is pretty shocking. 40 times the death rate. So if you take 40 times 212,000, you know, that, that's, that's, pretty, uh, that's pretty outrageous. Let's hit our equal sign here. 
That's about one, I'm sorry, 339 million. That's a lot. That is a lot. In fact, that's so big. Let me shed some light on this. Yeah, 339 million. That's more than the people population in the United States. In other words, the number of times that people are harmed is more than uh, one harm for each person in the United States every year. That's a lot of harm. And again, this gets buried in the daily exposure that care providers have around patients who are suffering or in pain is to be expected following procedures. And so that's true. A lot of this suffering, pain, mutilation created unnecessarily. In other words, it's compounded on top of the person's disease that's created totally by their therapy is simply overlooked because, oh, it's a hospital. Everyone here is suffering. Everyone here is in pain. So from a daily afternoon fever to a debilitating reaction to chemotherapy. Wait a minute. A debilitating reaction to chemotherapy. And now this happens when the chemotherapy is given to the right patient at the right dose, at the right concentration, at the right frequency. And so the person writing this says, here is a look at perplexing medical mystery cases. Again, this is not perplexing. This is very straightforward. And so this is written by Ariana Njong Cha, a national reporter. She's previously served as a post-bureau chief in Shanghai and San Francisco and a correspondent in Baghdad. Okay. Incredible international credentials. But the problem here is that this is not a, a, a consequence of doctor incompetence. It is a consequence of the way the system is designed. And the real deal here is this is just standard medical practice. This is routine. This is de rigueur. This is all in a day's work. And so the interesting thing here is that um, the Inspector General in Medicare has uh, done a report. This is uh, by Dr. Levinson, 2010, so when he published this report. And there's no reason to ex uh, expect that anything has changed. But the shocking thing about this report, the really shocking thing, is uh, Dr. Levinson is very clear that Medicare has standards. Medicare has a list of uh, definitions as an adverse event. We know what that is. An adverse event is an event that is uh, deleterious or harmful to the patient as a result of medical care. Okay, we got that. But there's another kind of event. And this is called a never event. A never event. And a never event is an event that should never happen. An event that should never happen in a hospital. An example of a never event is a patient rolling off the x-ray table onto the floor. 
That is an example of a never event. However, how about saying that dying as a result of medical therapy, how about we call that a never event? They have not uh, reached that point. So the death of a patient due to medical care is actually not a never event. And so what's really shocking about this, well, first of all, is that death due to medical care is not a never event. That would be bad enough. But that when the Medicare Inspector General looked at these cases where Medicare patients died as a result of their medical care, they found that very few involved never events. In other words, most of the deaths resulting from medical care were preceded by totally acceptable events. In other words, their hospital care provided did not raise any red flags. And so to make this even more clear, as my mother would say, not to put too fine a point on it, a patient coming into the hospital and receiving medical care that leads to his death is in most cases consistent with routine, acceptable events. Interesting. It's like car accidents, for example. A car accident might be preceded by somebody running a stop sign or running a light or exceeding the speed limit. And so what the inspector general found in the um, Medicare report to Congress was that these adverse events in hospitals that led to the death of a Medicare recipient was not preceded by a never event. Of course, this leads to the next corollary, um, which means that the death of the patient itself was the only never event in the sequence. In other words, there's no um, red flag, no warning, nothing. It's like, oops, the person died. And this is pretty shocking because it means then that the ability of the government to protect you, since they don't have any um, markers of harm, is minimal to, to basically nil. Now, another um, shocking event as a result of this report is that even though this report determined that based on their research, their numbers, back in, uh, you know, this is reported in 2010, 180,000 Medicare recipients were being killed each year as a result of their medical care. 
And even though they were actually able to identify cases, none were referred for prosecution. None of the facilities were banned from the Medicare program. And so this is shocking. It's difficult to understand or difficult to accept or difficult to conclude that uh, Medicare is actually looking out for the benefit of its recipients when as a result of a report like this showing the deaths of 180,000 Americans, um, nothing is done. So we have to take a look at what's going on here when 180,000 Americans dying in one year as a result of care certified and supervised by the government is nothing's done. But when 3,000 people, more or less, die in uh, two towers in New York City that disintegrate, oh, well, now we've got to uh, go to war. Well, what do we say we not even go to war, just defund the Medicare program? It sounds like a lot of Medicare recipients would live, that, that we might increase life expectancy just by defunding the Medicare program. I know, I know. A lot of you listeners are like, Jennifer or Dr. Daniels, a lot of people can't afford their medical care. They're old, and if, and if they don't have Medicare, they're going to they're gonna be impoverished. Well, let's take a look at that assumption. Maybe if they didn't have Medicare, maybe they would decide that they're not going to get any care. Maybe they would decide that they're going to let their kids inherit everything. And by making that decision to refuse their care because they couldn't afford it, they may end up living actually quite a bit longer. So there's no evidence that having Medicare is um, medically beneficial. In fact, I would say that it's, uh, it's the opposite. Exactly the opposite. So the problem, the medical industrial complex, the system of medical care uh, we now have in the United States is doing quite a bit of harm. It's uh, killing a lot of people. Again, this is not murder because the doctors are licensed, the hospital personnel are licensed, the hospitals themselves are licensed. And in other words, all this is being done with government permission, government approval. And so it's only murder when the death or the killing is unauthorized. And so since the killing is authorized, not a problem. So uh, that's the issue. So the issue is we have a system in place designed to kill Americans. It's very effective. It's working very well. And what we have here is a uh, propaganda, marketing, public relations campaign to get people to believe that these events are somehow mistakes. Even the very committees, M&M, named after a popular candy, uh, morbidity and mortality death committee, which already exists, by the way, at every hospital, call them death committees. Um, they review these deaths and they classify these deaths, all of them, as errors. 
So now you have the hospital supervising itself and classifying these deaths as errors. So as I, uh, I attended a couple of these meetings, so that's why I can tell you that this is, way, this is what happens at these meetings. So I attended uh, this meeting, the M&M meeting, and I was listening as they presented the case, and I couldn't help but uh, decide that, that this person died as a result of the therapy they received. And so, of course, because of the way everything's discussed, you don't even reach uh, the level of understanding was this care provided within the guidelines of the standard of care? And so that was never, um, it was never reached. In fact, it was always presumed that a doctor was operating within the standard of care, but while operating within the standard of care, he may have made a mistake of some sort. And so when I attended these m M&M meetings, I was uh, a young doctor. I was a resident because nobody wants to go to these meetings. Um, uh, as I got further on in my career, I realized why. You didn't want to go to the meetings because you knew that nothing was going to be done to solve the problem or save the next life. And so, of course, it was always depressing to go to these M&M meetings um, because, again, nothing was going to get better or improve. So the real problem then is we have in place a... Um, industry designed to systematically harm and kill Americans. But we have Americans being indoctrinated, propagandized to accept this, and that whenever this system creates a human death or kills a human being, that the system is actually malfunctioning. And so it's difficult to consider that a system is malfunctioning when it malfunctions 215,000 times every single year. And as Dr. Macri and other people looking at this said, well, wait a minute, if any other industry malfunctioned this many times a year, 214,000, then it would be unacceptable. And the answer, of course, is yes. But this is not a malfunctioning. These deaths due to the medical industrial complex are what the medical industrial complex is designed to do. And so that is, uh, is what's going on. These are not accidents. And they're not even errors. Um, as the report said itself, many of these deaths are designed into the system. It's just systematic things. And so who designs the system? Who has the authority to change the system? Certainly not the doctors. Now, this is not to let the doctors off the hook because uh, you know, they're, they're implementing the, the program. I mean, it's like letting uh, letting a policeman off the hook uh, when he's following, you know, a tyrannical or unconstitutional policies. At what point does do the individuals involved in the system have to be called to account and accept responsibility? And the answer is, if there is any accountability, that's the only level at which it ever happens, unfortunately, which is a very low level. Um, so the only way to prevent this is for the patients to realize what's going on, to realize the danger that they're in, and to refuse to submit to this danger. And how do you do that? It's very easy because they've, they've actually um, illuminated the way for you right here. They've told you the answer. So the answer is 
It's the third leading cause of death behind diseases of the heart and cancer. So if you're going to go and get treatment for a disease, and it's not heart disease, and it's not cancer, you've got no business going to the medical industrial complex because you're only going to trade a low-risk disease, which is your ailment, let's just say diabetes, for a high-risk disease or higher-risk condition, which is death by medical intervention. Now, uh, you can look a little more complicated in here and see that these malignant cancers, uh, most cancers, are actually a false diagnosis. Um, a good example of this is prostate cancer. Uh, another uh, example of this is DCIS, which is a form of breast cancer. Um, another example of this is papillary thyroid cancer, which was recently downgraded from uh, cancer to benign, yet Thousands of people have had their thyroids removed and been treated with radioactive iodine. So these malignant neoplasms diagnosis, a lot of that is bogus. But at least if you have an issue that's not cancer, that's not heart disease, you should definitely not consult the medical industrial complex because as they told you, if you have any other condition, then when you go to the doctor or hospital, you're actually increasing your chances of dying. That's what they're saying. That's exactly what they're saying. So we have got questions in the chat room. Let's go take a look. And while we're doing that, we see it blog talk radio. Uh, my, uh, studio is blank. So my studio and blog talk radio. Oh, there it is. Okay. It came up. Amazing. Um, so people have a question on the uh, line. They can just click a button. And let's see. Fear for you and thoughts. Okay. Uh, Dr. Dias, how can this be going on in all these hospitals all over the world? In places loaded with... <laughs> okay. How can this be going on all over the world? Uh, the way this is going on is that these systems are put in place and that uh, there's a tremendous amount of propaganda. And now what's happening is that um, people are being trained to accept the level of harm that's done in medicine. For example, in medical school, we are taught as doctors that we are making the best of a bad situation, that we are choosing the best of a lot of bad choices. And so if they're all bad choices, then why not... Uh, not make any of them? And why not give the patient the option to do nothing? And so um, the answer is the educational process itself is a gradual process. It's a screening process. And people who are not um, believers are screened out at every level. And so you only get people who wake up um, at the end of the process and the only then, if then, very slowly. And so the educational process screens out people who are um, conscious and uh, discerning. Also in the United States, um, intense financial incentives are put in place, such as um, a person with lots of loans. And so they're, they're um, put in a position of having to pay off these loans. And that clouds their thinking and clouds their reasoning. And so people are, are, think a lot less uh, deeply 
Okay, so next question. Dr. Yes, are we trained to become patients? Absolutely, absolutely. And now with the health classes in school, children are being trained to be patients very early. And with all these mandatory vaccines, every time a kid gets a jab, he's what? A patient. Dr. Yes, what's an easy, natural way to get rid of head lice for you or your children? <laughs> okay. All right, so... Uh, you guys have probably heard that African-Americans don't get head lice. So when I was a kid, African-Americans never got head lice. They just didn't. Now, why didn't African-Americans get head lice? Because there's something called straightening. What is that? That means you take a comb made of metal and you put it in the fire, almost like a forge. And then you take that comb and you comb the hair with it. And this uh, straightens the hair. But it also burns any head lice that might be there. And so what's the natural way to get rid of head lice? Wash your, your hair with whatever soap you care to. Um, towel dry. Put a towel around your neck so you don't burn yourself. Turn the blow dryer on high and dry your hair. It will fry all the lice and their eggs. And you've got the cure. <laughs> okay. So someone... Uh, says for head lice, you can uh, dust your hair and body with uh, talcum powder or diatomaceous earth, and it takes two days, and uh, they'll be dead. Okay, so that's, that's one option with the blow dryer. They're like dead on contact. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, a lot of a good sense of humor here in the chat room. All right. Okay, got that. Dr. Daniels, is the medical industrial complex a military operation? That's a good question. Um, you know, if you take a look and you see that um, when operated as intended, um, it has a pretty high casualty rate and that those casualties are exempt from prosecution by the government, then it's certainly um, very similar to a military operation, although it is happening on uh, domestic soil. Oh, Dr. Daniels, do you think this might have something to do with the titles in medicine, such as Surgeon General and Medicare Inspector General? Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was in, in medical school, I was really um, curious about all the militaristic analogies that they would use, um, you know, about killing the uh, bacteria, about um, locking this up or locking that up, or NK killer cells in the body. And I would think, geez, I don't feel anything killing in my body and I'm in pretty good health. So, yes, it's to get people to look at their health, to look at their body in um, military terms. Hi, Dr. Daniels. How will this turpentine work to deal with the chronic and constant bloating caused by bacterial overgrowth? Um, so, uh, people should go to vitalitycouncils.com forward slash candida and get the free report, the candida cleaner. And in this report, it tells you you need to get three bound movements a day before you get going with turpentine. 
So what happens then is just with three bowel movements a day, people notice their bloating is much less. And then the turpentine helps to uh, aid your immune system in getting rid of uh, other things that can cause uh, bloating, basically the parasites. <laughs> <laughs> this is interesting. So this person in the chat room is telling a joke, and I say, the patient told the doctor, doctor, whatever happens, make sure you help the insurance company, because at least if you help the insurance company, I might have a chance. Now, this is what we were taught back in medical school in 1979 to 83. And now 90 I realize that if the doctor does what the insurance company says, the patient almost never has a chance. <laughs> and says, so, Dr. Daniels, you know it's bad when the diagnosis of cancer ends up being more deadly than the actual cancer you have. Exactly. And that's what's going on. So 60 seconds. It's actually itself uh, the illness. Okay. But Dr. Daniels, <laughs> it wasn't intentional. The deaths are not intentional. They were just trying to help and do their jobs. How can a person find fault with that? Exactly. But when they when do it just doing your job results in two hundred and fourteen thousand deaths a year, and this is their account, then you have to take a second look at just uh, doing your job. All right, we are now at the end of the show. Unfortunately, sorry, we could not get to all the the uh, questions. Ten seconds. In the chat room, but this is Dr. Daniels and signing off. Healing with Dr. Daniels, and of course, as always. Think happens.